Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Pearl Steinzer, and I'm an assistant editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we had the opportunity to speak with an author from a study published in the June issue of the American Journal of Managed Care. With us is Dr. Krista Shayashadi, a general internist, primary care physician, and adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. He drew on his experience as medical director for Penn Medicine On Demand to lead this study, Economics of a Health System's Direct-to-Consumer Telemedicine for its Employees. The study compares the mean per episode unit cost for a direct-to-consumer telemedicine service for medical center employees with that of in-person care, with the objective of estimating whether DTC telemedicine increased the use of care. Welcome Dr. Shadi, to the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do? Uh, hi, I'm Krista Shayashadi. I'm a general internist and primary care doc. Um, I am an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania uh, Health System. Uh, and during the time of the study, I was the medical director for Penn Medicine On Demand, which is the direct-to-consumer telemedicine uh, that was studied uh, in this study. Perfect. And can you tell us more, what exactly is direct-to-consumer or DTC telemedicine, and what are the benefits opposed to in-person health visits? Yeah, Generally and broadly speaking, direct-to-consumer telemedicine is telemedicine where uh, patients or people have uh, instantaneous access to a provider or service there. Uh, how does that differ? So you can think about, you know, your primary care doc, uh, like myself, might have a telemedicine offering, uh, but it's scheduled uh, during your kind of particular appointments here. Uh, now, a direct-to-consumer uh, telemedicine product, classically speaking, is a kind of a 1-800 equivalent or schedule it online and then basically uh, be able to meet somebody for your needs uh, whenever you want uh, as a patient. Most of the times there are what's called out-of-pocket costs. You just pay for uh, the visit itself. Probably no different than if, let's say, you went to an urgent care uh, down the street and you paid you know, a $25 or $50 copay uh, to see those individuals. Now, I will say the lines have gotten muddied uh, over time uh, as you know many more providers uh, offer telemedicine services. Uh, and so now some of the direct-to-consumer telemedicine uh, offerings actually start to look uh, not too dissimilar from the way your primary care doc uh, might do it. So I can say that the lines have blurred a, a lot uh, since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And can you provide a brief overview of your study? And was there anything you found surprising from your findings? Yeah, so uh, one of the things we were embarking upon here was really trying to understand uh, the economic trade-offs of a direct-to-consumer telemedicine offering the way that Penn Medicine had offered it. And so let's let's backtrack here, which is like, what are some benefits here that we didn't study or perceived benefits that we didn't study? Uh, One was a perception of people's time. And so one of the things that uh, telemedicine proponents have long uh, upheld is this idea here that by providing a convenient source of care, it really helps patients get to their answers quicker uh, and avoids all the time costs we can imagine uh, we all have when we go see somebody in person. 
getting in the car, finding parking, waiting in the lobby. Uh, and those things not only have time costs, they also have physical costs, paying for parking, paying for the gas uh, that's getting there. And so uh, are there opportunities here to do things uh, via telemedicine here? Um, but one of the challenges of moving in that direction is kind of like, is it worth the cost to the people providing it and the people who, who pay for that care? And so our study was trying to answer these very detailed questions about the cost of operating that service and whether that was of value uh, to the patient or the provider of care here. And so I kind of meld the two together because the patient's in a relationship through their insurance with a, a payer here, um, but they were also, uh, at the same time, the payer here is the one who's going who's gonna to ultimately support the bill or not. So we were asking the question, hey, like, what is the impact of this kind of widely available direct-to-consumer telemedicine product uh, for a payer. Uh, now, I'll give you a, a couple caveats. This was a study, particularly of uh, employees of a health system. Uh, and so these employees of a health system are in what's called a, uh, a, a self-insured product, meaning uh, the patient or the employee here, um, whenever they use the service, we're actually costing the health system uh, some money. And so you might imagine these are kind of like funny arrangements, right? Which is like every time you go see an urgent care provider as an employee of, of a health system, you're basically costing your employer uh, some money and they have to foot the bill and cover the bill for it. That's in a, in a truly self-insured uh, line here. Uh, the other kind of component to it, and we don't get too deep into this here, is that the economics are also quite interesting because if you actually go see a your own health system you're actually the left. We say the left hand is paying the right hand, but if you want to go see your competitor's health system, then the health system is paying their competitor uh, the cost of taking care of their employees. And so, anything uh, employees and particularly and health systems are trying to here contain both the number of visits that are happening, but then also where people are seeking care uh, in their system. Um, and you know, I don't know if uh, surprise. Yes, this question about surprising or not. But I don't know if there's anything that's like super surprising about it. Uh, that being said, so mostly because we just wanted to know the answer. Like, was it saving the health system money? Um, and kind of what are the kind of trade offs here in kind of increasing the volume of care that people were uh, embarking upon? And let's discuss your findings and how could the telemedicine experience during the COVID-19 pandemic affect the relevance of these findings? So the two main punchlines uh, of it that we found uh, was that it saved the health system uh, significant amounts of money uh, to offer this direct-to-consumer telemedicine product to its employees. Uh, and the way we did it, we, we essentially did a propensity score matched uh, study design, which is basically you're essentially trying to create two like groups of individuals. And you're saying, hey, one person chose the direct to consumer telemedicine product for this particular condition. And the other person chose an in-person uh, appointment uh, for this uh, particular condition. And we took all conditions that were ever used for the direct to consumer telemedicine product and basically found there was substantial cost savings here. The other thing though, is that those cost savings may be offset if basically there was inducing care. So people were seeking way more care for things they would have never sought had the telemedicine program not existed. So you can imagine people just have curiosity questions about something, or they were calling a doctor or a provider for telemedicine much earlier than they would have for, say, a common cold or common illness there. We did see that there was a slight increase 
uh, in those kind of extra visits, but it wasn't so much that it was offsetting the total cost savings that they would have for the delivery of that care uh, each time uh, that it happened. On top of that, um, you kind of asked this question about like, oh, how the COVID pandemic uh, affect the relevance of these findings? We, uh, so the PEMDAS and on-demand existed during the pandemic, but we elected in this study to only look at the pre-pandemic period. So why, why would we do that? One is that people's behaviors of where they chose to see people in person or telemedicine was vastly different uh, during the pandemic uh, than I think we are experiencing today. And part of that has to do with one, uh, people were having COVID-19. So like, you know, they were worried about contracting it, uh, giving it to other people and whatnot. Uh, but then also at the same time, people were avoiding care. I mean, that's pretty well documented here. We thought that the period prior to the pandemic for this pet medicine demand on-demand cohort was going to be more uh, likely to simulate what people would do once kind of the dust settled. And uh, what we observed in this employee population is about 20% of the visits for uh, common conditions seen by the direct-to-consumer telemedicine project was seen by Penn Medicine On Demand. That's a really high number and much higher than any prior reported study there. We think probably that's actually not too dissimilar how people would use uh, telemedicine now, which is for a certain or a large proportion, maybe one in five here or one in four, uh, would be actually for these common uh, kind of low acuity, acute conditions uh, through telemedicine. So we think, we we hypothesize at least uh, that the two periods would look the same. <clears throat> and um, what do you wish employers and their employees knew more about DTC services and its potential cost-saving benefits? I think fundamentally employers in particular had bought into direct-to-consumer telemedicine even prior to the pandemic and, and obviously bought into it during the pandemic. And part of it had to do with a well-known challenge that uh, employees or people in this country have with accessing care. You know, the conversation is always about, you know, it's eight months to see somebody, it's two months to, before they see their primary care doc, even though they called about something urgent. You know, so the wait times here across the country are, are very long. And uh, there's a lot of after-hours care that's already happening. So people are going to urgent care after a long workday. So remember, these are employees of companies uh, here, and the uh, common times are nine to five. And most primary care offices are not open after five o'clock. Um, and very few of them are open uh, after hours. And if they are open, maybe it's till seven o'clock, maybe it's until eight o'clock, uh, but that can be quite challenging. And so employers, want to test whether or not they can improve access, but ultimately uh, improving access should not be at the whim or the consequence of raising their costs or their expenses. And so what I, what I want to kind of encourage here is I think this is one of the first studies that starts to highlight that there, there may be lots of value here for employers to really lean into direct-to-consumer telemedicine uh, to help support the needs of their employees. But one big caveat here is that the population here may not match a general employee population. So, you know, we, we studied, again, healthcare workers or people who work for a health system here uh, who are fairly savvy, probably have a lot more medical knowledge, and they probably have a better chance, we think, or a better, better mindset of being able to kind of triage to say like, hey, you know what? I'm probably not going to call this direct-to-consumer telemedicine product for my heart attack or a broken leg. But, you know... I got a cold. I'm going to call. 
you know, would a, would a non-healthcare worker population behave differently? I don't know, probably somewhat, but would it behave so differently that the cost uh, benefit here doesn't uh, shift or shifts in the kind of in the negative column uh, or the loss column for an employee? That's, that is a question I think that's, that's out there uh, to be answered. Okay. And yeah, you, you touched on this already, but uh, are there any other limitations or challenges to receiving care um, for patients that may be creating other barriers of care or health disparities? Totally. Yeah. So uh, uh, not in this study, but we've looked at this pretty extensively about um, whether or not uh, telemedicine is creating a digital divide or disparities uh, between individuals here. Uh, and I think the evidence is quite mixed out there. I think it depends on how you offer that telemedicine service and then what it's anchored to. So let me break that down. So one is that we're very clear here that offering telephonic care truly improves access to care, uh, particularly for populations predominantly Black, predominantly low-income, predominantly underserved regions or rural areas, uh, can really improve access to care uh, telephonically because it's really easy to use. To pick up the telephone, every, almost everybody can do it. When you start to offer or mandate virtual visits, it starts to become more restrictive. And then it depends on, do they have the device? Do they have the right internet? Do they have enough bandwidth in their own house? Do they bought the higher bandwidth service? Do they live in a region where there's actually sufficient bandwidth, even if they bought the higher service? So lots of things that kind of impact upstream, whether or not those individuals are able to truly access uh, that type of care. That being said, uh, we've done studies to basically show that uh, there is so much demand for care for low-income populations, Black, African-American uh, populations, Spanish-speaking populations, that they they invariably have long, long wait times uh, to be seen in person, that even any advancement in providing a kind of an easier pathway for them to seek care improves their total access to care. Uh, so what I mean by that, so basically if you looked at the added number of visits across telemedicine, telephonic or virtual, plus their in-person care, the volumes are much higher when telemedicine is in the ecosystem than when telemedicine is not. And we know that those particular populations really struggle uh, to be able to access care in a timely, timely fashion here. Mm -hmm. um, and what are the next steps in better understanding the value of DTC telemedicine services for employees? Yeah, I let's see. Uh, we we kind of addressed this earlier. I, I think a follow up study is totally warranted to look at particular behaviors post pandemic here. What I would really encourage the the academic and policy community that's out there is to create data sets that actually can help answer that question. And so that one of the things that really prompted the study and we thought was really important to both evaluate from was the ability to interlock clinical data with claims data, with operational data. So we were able to see across the entire kind of balance sheet, what the total cost here we're going to be to the payer or the, uh, or here in this case, the employer here, and then also try to understand kind of the impact on the patients themselves here. That kind of data set doesn't classically exist out there. So the ability to create that data set can kind of give us a clearer picture here of what the value is of direct-to-consumer telemedicine. And at the same time, I do believe that actually restraints should be placed on here about 
particularly what conditions people may be seeking direct-to-consumer telemedicine for, uh, and kind of these inadvertent or um, kind of um, uh, uh, unintentional, as the word I was aware, unintentional consequences of doing this. You know, does creating an easier pathway or more convenient pathway start to limit access to care for some populations? Does it improve access to care for other populations? These should be judged uh, across realms of health equity, inequity, uh, access to care. But I think they can be tweaked with design choices of how you deliver the program and also very likely federal regulations. Um, but I think if we are already in a position stance at the payment level to basically say, you know what, I'm just too worried about rising costs here. Here, we probably will never truly answer the question of whether what is the true value of direct-to-consumer medicine for which populations, uh, when is it used and for what conditions? Um, and I think allowing some room to really experiment and evaluate in those settings can help us actually decide, better decide what are the right types of guardrails uh, here, uh, rather than just saying, hey, we're, we're going to pay for it, or we're not going to pay for it, uh, carte blanche. Perfect. And is there any last um, takeaways or points that you would like to touch upon that I didn't ask you yet? I think ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's these types of analyses that will be important to help people make decisions about about the way programs are designed. And I think we are now entering uh, an era uh, where it's not just what are the payment rules or the regulation rules, but actually how our program is designed uh, will ultimately uh, matter even more for the outcomes that we, we hope to observe uh, in the healthcare ecosystem. Well, thank you again, Dr. Shaya Shadi. To learn more about equitable digital health and direct-to-consumer telemedicine, visit AGMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AGMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AGMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.